This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We, uh, be it for the good or the worse, uh, we have a fascination with organized crime. Always have. Uh, we've uh, had a number of authors that have written about it. Hamilton, of course, has a very colorful history of organized crime dating back to Rocco Perry. Remember the book uh, Whiskey King that we talked about a couple of months ago? And uh, there have been others, of course, subsequent to that because of some of the involvement of uh, some Hamilton figures and Toronto figures and Guelph figures. I mean, it uh, it is here, and it's uh, something that police have been investigating for quite some time. And with the death of Vito Rizzuto a couple of years ago in Montreal, uh, it seems as if there is a turf war right now as to who's going to be the king of the hill. And that has spilled into Hamilton, according to at least our next guest anyway, Peter Edwards is uh, an author of a number of books about organized crime, well-researched uh, and fascinating books about organized crime. And, of course, uh, he writes uh, for the uh, Toronto Star, their crime reporter, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Peter, great uh, to have you back on the program. Long time no hear from. How you been? Oh, yeah, I'm great, great. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me back. Well, this is an interesting story and obviously something that you've been following for quite some time and follows very much in the vein of a number of the of the books that you've written about this in the past about, uh, it's, I guess, the domino effect, Peter. When something happens, there's always going to be a reaction to that. And uh, any time that there's a void at the in a power structure, there's always going to be somebody who wants to fill that void, right? Well, exactly. I mean, this is filling a vacuum, and if um, if one person can't do it, um, several will try and fill it um, as a group. So talk to us about this and walk us through the, uh, the piece that you wrote uh, that's in the Star today that talks a little bit about some of the things that our listeners here in Hamilton might be uh, familiar with, obviously, because it's been in the news to do with, first of all, the Musitano family. But you you actually connect some dots here, and it goes all the way back to the death of, of Vito Rizzuto a couple of years ago. Yeah, there's a couple things going on, and I, I talked to um, a fair amount of people from, from both sides of the fence um, um, on, on this one, and... Um, Part of it is that Vito Rizzuto was a very, very strong figure, and so he could hold um, uh, hold people apart. He could have people making money who don't necessarily get along. He could keep people running in their lanes, that sort of thing. And with him gone, uh, that that order is gone. He actually predicted the order would fall apart when he got arrested. And um, the other side, um, what um, what's being seen is that some of his enemies are coming under attack by a, um, a group of people like that. Um, a group that he might have led at one point now is kind of coalesced, and people from BC, people from Quebec, um, not not all the traditional organized crime Godfather type people, but a real um, United Nations of people has, has moved into the void to a point. Where is the power structure right now, Peter? As, as things stand, you know, we we can talk about you know the black hand and to go back in history, and and for many people, of course. Their, their information about this may simply be based on, on media coverage or based on, on fiction, really, uh, whether it's The Godfather or any other number of things or The Sopranos, etc., which uh, I, I was usually characterized as a very accurate depiction of, of, of the, the way crime families worked. But there has been some discussion, as you know, in the media in the last couple of years, that that's gone now, that that, that media structure, that, that, that power structure is, is, is now obsolete, and it's Russian mob and it's biker gangs that are, that are running organized crime. What, what is the status now? Um, there's something called the Andrangheta, which isn't um, a, um, a word most people can pronounce, let alone um, understand the group that's been around for a long, long time, and they make in the tens of billions a year, um, huge, huge in the um, international cocaine trade. They're, they're supposed to have about 40% of the world cocaine trade, or European cocaine trade, I mean. Um, they're still around. They're very strong. They're, um, they're more in York region. Hamilton has more a um, um, lot of different groups and some influence from the Niagara region um, coming up from... Uh, there still is a bit in Buffalo, which is the old American stuff, um, um, Buffalo's a Niagara region's a little more um, a little more wide open, but there are a lot of places to bring in drugs through the Niagara, and um, so it's all changing. But it, it hasn't gone away. Sometimes we like to just when we don't understand to just say it's gone, but it's still there. We we don't hear much about it though, uh, and and maybe that was because there was a period of time when we did hear a lot about it, much to the chagrin, I guess. Uh, of some of the people involved in organized crime. I mean, they they looked at an individual like a John Gotti in New York, for instance, uh, the Teflon Don, um, you know, who actually relished the idea of being a media figure. Uh, and when that's really uncharacteristic of, of the people that tend to be involved in this this sort of stuff. 
Yeah, now they're um, the big ones don't want to even admit it exists and definitely don't want to admit that they're in it. And there's a fair bit of, of intermarriage. Um, we, we like to have a nice, tidy person at the top that we can blame, almost like a, um, you know, a cartoon. We like to have sort of Mr. Evil that we can point at. And it, it's more kind of an alliance of business interest and just finding ways of servicing markets that they can make a lot of money off. So, but those crime figures, the, the, as we mentioned the Gaudis, the Joe Bonanos, and, and some of the other famous or, I guess, infamous uh, crime figures from New York, uh, do those families still exist? Do they still have influence? Well, they, they still exist. There's the stuff that's still around. It's just other things that come around, um, uh, you know, that, that, that also matter. I mean, there's something called the Wolfpack Alliance, which um, it is a significant force, but it's very, um, very low-key. It, it, what that does is pull together key people from a lot of different groups to work in sort of a, um, a temporary consortium type of thing. It, it's almost like in the media now we have these disruptors like BuzzFeed who are challenging the, the bigger groups and they're tech-savvy. There's a lot of times young and patient. They don't have a, a code of conduct. They don't have bloodlines, but they, they are very good at what they do. Was there a time, uh, and maybe confirm or deny the, the the feeling a lot of people had, when as as organized crime was flourishing, I guess, when it seemed to be you know, the focus of attention, and 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 obviously of some of the fiction works and movies and things that went on, uh, there, you had the families, the five families, and of course in Canada it was a little bit different because of the Montreal influence, but there was New York essentially and Montreal. But there seemed to be some sense of, of geography. In other words, okay, you can exist uh, over here, just don't involve that guy's turf over there. And and, and there seemed to be some sort of a, a an agreement that that would happen. It, it seems as if that's all gone out the window now. No, that's a great question. Um, that That's really kind of hitting at the core of a lot of this. With, with technology, you, borders don't matter so much. If you have a... Um, encrypted connection to someone down in uh, Mexico who can get you drugs or can get you other things, then, um, uh, you know, turf doesn't really matter. You can you can flee one area and come to another area. You can spot an opportunity. You can make a temporary alliance. You can do business with someone who you, you don't really have to meet or be seen with. And if it's um, done well in cyberspace, it's extremely hard to track. Why did that that alliance break up? Was it was it that younger generation you say that just didn't seem to stand for the 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 traditional way of doing things? Uh, some people suggest it was the influence of biker gangs, etc., that simply thumb their nose at the traditional way that things were done and simply say we're going to do whatever the heck we want. How how did that break down? Yeah, I think for bikers, I think there's a um, a real split between like the over and under, say thirty five or forty. I think some of them really do get the old. Um, the old mold really well, and then some of the younger ones just aren't like that at all. And I, I think the cyberspace made a huge amount of difference. I think, and also 9/11 made it so that you didn't really want to cross the border. I mean, you, you really don't want to go to the states. Um, Peter Rizzuto never wanted to set foot in the states. Um, he, he made a point of when he was flying that the flight wouldn't touch down in, in the states. Yeah, and that was going on all the time. I mean, we now know, of course, the uh, the famous case, the French Connection, which, of course, was also the topic of a, a movie uh, that was made back in the 70s with Gene Hackman, but that was based on a true story, of course. And there was a Hamilton connection to, to the French Connection, of course, uh, with the Hamilton organized crime family uh, at that time that we found out about sometime later on. But uh, but I guess everything's done now with uh, with the Internet and the click of a button. Yeah, and it's really interesting because, yeah, John Papalia did show up in the French Connection, which is fascinating because um, there were charts from the early 60s where, I mean, like John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, people like that were were snooping around on this sort of thing. Um, but now the, the charts just don't matter as much. Like it used to be the big thing in my job was to get a chart. Now... Um, if someone gives you one, great, but it's it's a really temporary snapshot. Like you're looking at at um, maybe twelve people who work together, but but only eight of them are working on this, and six are working on that. So it's not it, it's more um, it's more horizontal than vertical now. Is anybody calling the shots now? In the days of of uh, you mentioned the Rizzuto family, and I know you've written extensively about that, Peter, over the years. Uh, that seemed to be the central place, as far more so than Toronto was, of course, and. In Toronto, there was an affiliation with uh, with some of the New York and even some of the Philadelphia 
uh, organized crime units uh, that were going on. But Hamilton and, and uh, this area here seem to be sort of stuck between the New York influence and the Montreal influence. Where is that standing right now, and who is calling the shots? Who's who's trying to exert influence here in the southern Ontario region right now? I think there's a lot of different groups, and I think um, I, I don't. There isn't one person at the top. There are. It's more like a um, collection of interests that come together, and so I think now, um, now the big thing is if you can pull together three, four different groups and agree on on one short-term goal, and then whoever. It's almost like a project manager now. I mean, the killing on College Street uh, five years ago was uh, the, the guy who was shot watching the soccer game, um, John Raposo. That was um, quite something for showing these different groups coming together because you had D.C., you had Quebec, you had old school mafia, you had um, kind of an idiot who just bought his way in because he had a lot of money. He had um, all sorts of different skills and um, things that were brought to the table. And, and it wasn't a group that was going to stick together forever, but they, they did make quite a splash for a while. You've talked to a number of police officers, uh, both uh, current and retired officers, who've spent a considerable amount of time investigating these sorts of things. And, and you talked a few minutes ago, Peter, about org charts, and, and those were obviously very important pieces of information for police uh, in, in law enforcement officials at that time to try to understand who was doing what and who was affiliated with what. Since they've gone out the window, how difficult is this for police to track this and to do anything about this? Um, it's, it's extremely, extremely hard, and I think um, now the ones that matter are the ones who are good on the Internet. I mean, the Internet's sort of everything now. The, um, it used to be that people would walk and talk, and you'd see them, and you'd see this guy with that guy. Now, um, Oh, like on that College Street shooting, you have a killing done where probably most of the people arranging the killing didn't even know the real name of the person who was above them in the power um, power struggle. Like they they knew his nickname and they knew roughly where he was from, but you know they 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 didn't really really know the guy, and yet they were involved in extremely heavy duty business with him. We had uh, in this area, of course, the uh, the death of Angelo Musitano just a, a little while ago, and. And subsequently, of course, uh, some, well, as you, I think you described them as warnings uh, to uh, to his brother's house uh, over in the east end of the city right now. Uh, where's that going? And, and, and what, I, I guess the overriding question is, I mean, there seems to be an awful lot of evidence right now that uh, that the younger Musitano had sort of stepped away from this sort of thing, and, and you and others had suggested that what you don't really retire from that line of work. Um, it, it's hard to, it's hard to draw a line. He, um... You know, and there's there's always there's bad blood lingers for a long, long time. I he he wasn't from what everything I've heard. He wasn't um, he wasn't the same person he was um, back in you know when he was really, really into this stuff. Um, that he um, had found religion. That it wasn't. Um, it's just extremely hard to get away from. And also, you have um, loyalties that you can't just turn your back on people who. Um, uh, you know who you've been with. Um, it, there's a certain amount of it. Sounds odd to say, but um, uh, some people will show a lot of disrespect to um, when and just not recognize what you know the lines that have been agreed upon. Where's this going to end up? You've been following this for years. You've been following some of the the well known and, and high profile crime figures right now. Uh, does does this reach a, a a point now where where there's going to be uh, and, and again, I don't want to draw on fiction here as, as you know, the, the, the basis for the conversation, but like in the Godfather movies where some, there's this grand move to try to take power right now. Is, do you see something like that happening? Um, see, I don't see anyone's ever, I, no one, there's never going to be another Vito Rizzuto. There's never going to be another guy at the top who, who stays for a long time. I think um, in, in York region, two really, really significant people have been been warned that there are credible threats on their lives. Two other people who are really high up the um, the pole um, have just left town, and it's not known if they're on holidays or what, but they're just gone. And, um, you know, if they're on volition, they're gone, and so I think they're hoping for heat to die down a bit. Um, I, I think there'll be surgical attacks, and I, I think a big thing will be gambling. I think if, if I was a criminal, gambling would be where I'd want to go because the money's huge and the penalties are very minimal. Are you working on another book at this stage? Sounds like there's an awful lot of material here. Yeah, I'm actually working on a bunch of them, but um, yeah, there's a, sort of a follow-up to um, a lot of the things we're talking about now. It's almost um, a crime in the cyber age, and um, 
kind of a um, kind of almost comparing it to what's happening in in other industries. You know, where you get attacked by smaller tech-savvy, short-term, um, very aggressive groups. Well, it's always a great read when you finally uh, get to, to the publisher and put something together, Peter. We look forward to that, and I know we'll talk about that once that one's published. And uh, it's a great piece of the Toronto Star today and very, very informative and eye-opening. Thanks, as always, for the time. Good talking with you again. Oh, thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. Take care. Peter Edwards, of course, crime reporter uh, for the Toronto Star, the author of a number of books, uh, and uh, one soon to be published, I guess, about what's going on with cybercrime and organized crime. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Cyclists here in the Hamilton area are finding that lanes created to help them safe, be safe are now being utilized by, well, utility vehicles, delivery vehicles, etc. for parking. It's not supposed to be that way. Vehicles uh, are parking in them, including Canada Post drivers. Now, that's not just Canada Post drivers because I've seen many instances of this going on in other areas. Well, Canada Post has now announced that it's going to stop having its vehicles parked in bike lanes throughout the Toronto area. But what about all these other areas, and what about all the other vehicles that are doing this? I want to bring Ryan McGreal into the conversation, editor of Raise the Hammer, and always a welcome guest here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Morning, Ryan. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm great. How are you doing? Good. Uh, Back after a couple of weeks of holidays, we uh, spent a lot of time driving around this fabulous province of ours in Toronto, Barrie, and Collingwood, and others. And i got to tell you, this is not a problem unique to Hamilton and Toronto. I've seen this everywhere. This has got to be very frustrating for cyclists. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's the whole idea of dedicated cycling space is that you have a place where you can ride a bike and not be in serious fear about getting struck by a car or having to navigate that kind of shared space. Now, I've been riding a bike for my entire adult life, and I'll ride in mixed traffic, but bike lanes are there for the other 99-point-whatever percent of people who want to ride bikes more but are not comfortable riding in mixed traffic. And so when a bike lane is blocked by cars and you have to, you know, swerve out into traffic to to get around a truck or a car or whatever it is, it defeats the whole purpose. I saw this story about a year or so ago on Global News one night. And it was it was a Toronto-centric story obviously. It was it was you know what was going on in downtown Toronto. And and they weren't even talking so much about Canada Post. It was about uh, the delivery vehicles, down to the UPS and 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 other vehicles like that period later. Uh, that were doing this sort of thing. And this was just after the bike lanes bylaw had gone in, into effect in Toronto. And and they made it quite clear that they said, look, this is not an oversight. You guys aren't supposed to be doing this. But the indication that at that time, Ryan, seemed to be, yeah, we know it's against the law, but uh, I will give them a pass because they're only going to be there for a couple of minutes. Is is that the mindset we're dealing with here? I'm, I'm honestly not sure what the mindset is. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly each individual who stops in a bike lane thinks, oh, I'm only here for a couple of minutes. But the problem is the aggregation of those individual choices. You know, one person throwing a a used coffee cup on the ground, well, that's just one piece. But if enough people do that, suddenly you have a huge litter problem. It's, it's, you know, individuals not recognizing that their actions are combined with everyone else's actions to create a system that's not working for people. Well, and, and I understand because I've heard the other side of this issue, too, from some of the people that are in delivery vehicles and saying, well, look at you, know, that's just-in-time delivery. I'm just going to be a second. I've got to run in there and drop this package off. But uh, they're, they're looking at this from their perspective, which is convenience. We need to get our job done. And that client that I'm going to deliver that package to uh, wants that done in a timely manner. But I, I think they fail to see that this is a safety issue. Well, it, it absolutely is a safety issue. And, you know, to, I mean, in defense of individual employees, you know, working for, for delivery companies, whatever, they're on a, a very, very strict clock, right? I mean, they have to get in and get their, their pieces delivered and get out as quick as possible. So they're going to use whatever is the most convenient way of getting, you know, to a, to a location and back again. The real issue for the city and for us is if we know that people are, have an incentive to stop in a bike lane if it's available to them, well, the solution is you don't make it available to them. You know, it's, there's no amount of enforcement is going to be enough to get people to stop using bike lanes when the very simple solution is simply to physically protect those bike lanes, and then the issue goes away. Which is what I've been talking about for the longest time. And that, that If we're going to make this commitment, and I'm glad to see more and more cities are doing this, and towns for that matter, uh, for cyclists and, and giving them their space on, on the road, uh, you've got to protect them, and you've got to ensure that that's going to be there for them. And painting a white line on the road doesn't necessarily mean that that cyclist is going to be safe and that people are going to respect that line on the road. Exactly. And not only does it not does it, does it not create real safety, it also doesn't create a perception of safety. I mean, if you're riding along in a bike lane that's 
let's say a meter wide, you know, and that's sort of on the wide side, you have automobile traffic passing very, very close to you, and there's no physical protection there. Even if they're not going to veer across that, you know, magic white line, it still doesn't feel safe for people. And then when you encounter a vehicle stopped, it's blocking that lane, that kind of destroys the illusion that you might be on uh, a space that has been created specially for you. Well, you know, when I've talked to police officers uh, involved in traffic safety, Ryan, they, they've talked to me about, because uh, I've had this discussion to do with, for instance, the HOV lanes on, on highways, and there's an expectation that, okay, if you're not in that lane, or even if you are, and you, there's an expectation that, well, that double line there means that nobody's going to cross over. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean they won't. It just means that you don't expect them to. The same thing happens if I'm a, a vehicular uh, traffic, uh, you know, whether it's a car, truck, van, whatever the case might be. And if I've got a bike lane beside me, my expectation is, well, that cyclist is going to stay in that bike lane. I'm going to stay here and we'll be fine. If that cyclist has to veer off to avoid something, I'm not expecting that as a motorist. And that's that's a, 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 that's a, a, a potential well, a disastrous result, really. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the best things you can do for people operating motor vehicles is to create physically protected bike lanes because that way you basically remove cycling traffic from those automobile lanes and you don't really have to worry about them, you know, as much anymore. I mean, obviously there's intersections and other conflict points where bikes and cars cross paths. And really in North America, we haven't figured out how to solve those yet. Uh, Europe is about 20 or 30 years ahead of us in terms of how they engineer intersections to minimize conflict between people on bikes and people in cars. But the first thing that we can do, and we're starting to do it now on a couple of uh, locations, is just provide that physical barrier. If a car can't cross a curb or, you know, actually, um, my favorite example is, uh, and you and I have talked about this a few times now, is on Herkimer and Charlton, mm-hmm. they actually use parked cars to provide physical protection for bikes. Well, that's, that, that's, a, that's a solution that solves a whole bunch of problems all at once. You have a place to park, and the place that you have to park not only isn't getting in the way of, of cyclists, it's actually physically protecting those cyclists from moving traffic. So that's that's an ideal situation, really. Why don't we look at doing something like that on some of the main arteries and thoroughfares? Now, I know that, that there are going to be those who are going to complain and say, oh, come on, that's going to bottleneck the traffic. Uh, be that as it may, uh, people will adjust, just as I think they have on Charlton and, and Herkimer uh, about and Aberdeen about what's going on with bike lanes there. I mean, people complain about change anytime you enact change. But at the same time, they're, they're at, in, in the passage of time, seems to be this, this attitude that, okay, we can make this work, and, and it does seem to work. And, and I'm getting that sense, and I'm seeing that happening in other municipalities. Why don't we look at that as an option here in Hamilton? Well, we certainly should be. And uh, we're in a situation right now where the city staff are reviewing the transportation master plan, and a review of our cycling plan is part of that. So I'm hoping they're going to come back with a recommendation that we get more uh, more of a strong commitment to creating a, a connected network of protected cycling routes through the city. One thing that I would point out is uh, the city recently published an update on the Cannon cycle track. So here is our, it's a pilot of a protected cycle track. I would argue the protection could be a little better in places. In fact, that's one uh, cycle track where you do occasionally get vehicles blocking it. But for the most part, it's it's got quite good protection. So they took away a lane of automobile traffic to do a protected two-way cycle track on Cannon, uh, what the city has found is that automobile traffic is actually smoother now on Canon than it was before. Uh, rush hour drive times are the same or slightly better than they were before they put that cycling track in. And this is something that we see quite often. You know, you redesign the street for, for smoother flow for everybody, and you don't nobody has to lose out. Well, and the concern that uh, many people expressed, of course, uh, especially some of those in delivery vehicles and uh, et cetera along Kingston or Cannon Street, because there are still some residential components there, was, well, if you cut that back, then somebody wants to, to park there, whether it's a moving van or a delivery vehicle, it's going to impede traffic. I don't see that there's evidence that that happens. I mean, people see that there's a blockage up ahead or they're expecting there's going to be a parked car or a vehicle in that lane, and they make the adjustment. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. That's something that, that I think we, we often forget about ourselves is that humans are very resilient, we're very adaptable, uh, we can respond when situations change around us. You know, we're not, we're not locked in place the way we like to think we are. And, you know, you can make a change to the street network that actually causes people to sort of slightly rethink how they do their day and quite often end up with, a, with a, an arrangement that works better than it did before. Now, we saw this happen when the Beckett Drive, the Queen Street Hill, was closed. Um, mo- when they reopened it, most of the traffic came back, but not all of it. Some people found routes that they preferred. What are we going to do from a safety standpoint here? I, I mean, in an ideal world, 
I and I would love to see something like what happened in Vancouver, and we've done it to a certain extent here, but not as extensively as I'd like to see. Is is things like planters, etc. In other words, something that's aesthetically pleasing to try to separate bike lanes from traffic. And I understand that probably not feasible on every road, but simply from a cost standpoint, I guess as much as as anything else. But but are, are we moving in that direction? Are we considering that this is something that has to be done? We have to try to find a strategy here. I think we are. I think we're taking baby steps. You know, and I'm I'm always. Uh anxious and impatient to get things moving more quickly. But, you know, I have to give the city credit. Staff are, are starting to embrace this idea that cycling infrastructure has to be um, to a higher quality than just a painted line or, you know, or a stencil of a bike on a mixed lane traffic. Uh, you, you see now, for example, this year, the um, Bay Street cycle track is coming. You know, it's going to be installed before the end of the summer. That's going to be a physically protected two-way cycle track running along Bay Street which is going to connect with the Canyon cycle track. So now we're starting to see some interlinks and we're starting to see some, some connectivity where you can actually get from somewhere to somewhere else. Now, I think we need to, to accelerate that. But of course, ultimately, those decisions and the, and the funding for those decisions comes from council. So uh, if council shows the leadership, I think you'll find that city staff are, uh, are pretty enthusiastic about the opportunity to make our streets better for more people. I mean, the one I always bring up, of course, is golf links out in Ancaster, out in, in, in my neck of the woods there, because I, and I feel badly uh, for any cyclist that tries to, to navigate through golf links there. I mean, because it is literally just a white line off on the side of the road, and uh, especially when you head over the top of uh, the link there, that, that overpass, uh, you've got lanes that are trying to move on to access the, the link, and uh, the traffic and the bike lanes, of course, are right there. There doesn't seem to be any distinction at all as to who has priority there, who has the right of way. Uh, I'm surprised there hasn't been any major accident there, but it, it just seems as if that's a, a situation that's crying out for a, a revision of some kind, and I don't see anything happening there. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Golf links is, I mean, the other thing that you never see is you almost never see any people riding bikes there. Excuse me. And I think there, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I consider myself a pretty comfortable uh, cyclist, you know, I've been I've been riding in mixed traffic for 25 years, however long now. Uh, I wouldn't be comfortable riding on golf links, you know. And I and I actually ride, you know. I mean, just yesterday morning I was on South Coach and McNiven and Garner Road, and you know I, I was riding all around that area. It's it's a beautiful part of town, and I really enjoy it. But I stay away from golf links myself. Well, and as you know, there's some active cycling clubs up in the Ancaster area that uh, that have rallies from time to time, and. And and I got to tell you, I, I feel as if these guys are taking their life into their hands when they start going in there. I mean, golf links itself, the design, the traffic design there is abhorrent. I mean, it's it's gridlock. People get frustrated. There there the stoplights and there are people blocking intersections and people get frustrated and they drive too fast. I see rear end collisions there all the time, and I figure I don't I don't blame cyclists for trying to avoid that area. I don't think it's safe for motorists or cyclists. Sure. Well, it's unfortunate. I mean, traditionally cities. Uh, we designed our streets in kind of a grid network. So you had lots of ways to get to and from anywhere. Uh, more recently, we've been designing as kind of kind of like an artery and spokes system where you have one major thoroughfare that feeds every single destination in an area, and then you have these little kind of tributaries that come off it. So everybody who wants to drive anywhere in the area gets funneled through this major artery. And, of course, there's lots of congestion there. People don't have any other way to get in or out. So... Let's talk about a long-term plan. You mentioned about the Bay uh, cycling track that's coming on side right now. With the advent of more of these, and, and I, I, I'm glad you referenced the, uh, the, the, the Charlton uh, situation here from a few months ago, and, and there are still some people that are bitter about that. The pushback from that was significant, and, and to their credit, the city was steadfast, and I know they've made some minor modifications, but they basically said, no, it's going to stay and we're going to continue to do this. Uh, is there some resolve now to develop some long-term plans right now and, and maybe to bring people on side before they're implemented so they have some understanding as to what it's going to look like and how it's going to impact them? And by them, I mean both motorists and cyclists? Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, I think the city learned some important lessons from how the Charlton Herkimer project rolled out. For one thing, they had active buy-in from the neighborhood associations that were impacted by that. Uh, for the second thing, the staff went to every single relevant department that was going to be impacted in any way, whether it was garbage collection or EMS, uh, snow clearing, and they made sure that the design they came up with satisfied all of those groups. And so when they received those inevitable challenges, well, how are you going to collect garbage? How are you going to clear snow? They had answers ready. And I think that's really important. That that Having that, that, that information enabled the counselor to be able to uh, 
to champion this, you know, with the knowledge that he was going to be supported by the, the, the work that staff had put into it. I think, I think the, the more that staff continues to do that kind of homework and, and get themselves ready, we're going to have more success. And when people do have pushback, because every single project is going to encounter naysayers and skeptics and people who are afraid of change. That's just, you know, we've talked about this before. It's basic human nature. We're all afraid of change. And then it changes. And after about a week, you go, oh, well, this is fine. Okay. But we always have that fear before the change happens. So we just have to be, we have to make sure that we're really good at understanding people's fears and having good answers that satisfy their concerns. And I think we'll see, we'll get more traction, particularly as you see on Cannon, where the, the inclusion of the cycling track has actually made it a, a nicer street to drive on. I mean, that's a win-win for everybody. Ryan, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the chicken and egg uh, argument here that always happens. And I know you hear this and you get feedback on this uh, in Raise the Hammer, and I certainly do when you and I have these discussions on our program here is that people will say, look, why are you even building the damn things? I only see five or six different cyclists on there any any given time. It's it's a waste of time and money to, to be doing these sorts of things. If you don't do it, you're never going to see any cyclists there. I mean, this is, this is one of these things where you, you build this and they will come. And I know that sounds like a cliche these days, but there seems to be fact-based uh, studies that have been done that indicates that that will happen. If you make it safe and you make it convenient for cyclists, you're going to see more cyclists. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, surveys consistently find over and over again that large majorities of Ontarians want to drive. Well, what sorry, want to 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 bike more. Nobody particularly enjoys driving. I mean, we would rather have. Most people would rather have alternatives. They would have, rather have options to get more exercise, have more physical activity, more active transportation. The only way that you're going to get, but you know, what what holds people back is fear of riding their bikes on the street, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable fear. I mean, it's it's uh, it's something that we know, you know, over and over again in every cultural context. Ninety nine, you know, and change percent of people will not ever be comfortable riding a bicycle in mixed traffic. The only places that have really high levels of cycling are places that built really good infrastructure first. And then people said, this is wonderful, I'm going to ride a bike. And they did. Well, I connect the dots in situations like this. And, and I just noticed, uh, even coming back from holidays the other day, uh, on, on, on some of the, the area highways, I, I mean, we've got texting and driving, we've got distracted driving that's going on. If you're driving a vehicle, and uh, I don't care if it's at 30 kilometers an hour or 80 kilometers an hour, whatever the case it might be, if you're just for one second distracted and you move two to three inches to one side simply because you're not paying attention, all of a sudden you're in a cyclist lane. Uh, and, and, I mean, that could be a tragic circumstance like this. Uh, the better we can do to create defensive infrastructure, stuff that to separate that kind of traffic from from cycling traffic, I think the better off everybody's going to be. Yeah, you're right. I mean, pe- people aren't perfect. We don't have perfect attention. We don't have perfect calmness. We get stressed out. We get anxious. We get distracted, uh, sometimes, unfortunately, by texting. But even other things, uh, we're, we're not entirely reliable. And so telling people to be more careful is never going to be a real solution to our problems. The way we solve, uh, the way we solve human kind of uh, frailty and inadequacy, inadequacy excuse me, is by doing better design, better engineering, uh, and, and creating an environment where even when somebody makes a mistake, it doesn't result in somebody else dying. Well, I'd like to see a discussion where obviously Canada Post has responded, but I mean others, uh, including some of the delivery vehicles, are at the table too to say, look, this is a problem for us. Well, here's the solution. Here's, here's the rule that everybody needs to abide by, and, and you know this is going to be good for them. It's going to get them their job done properly and efficiently and at the same time create a safe environment. That's very doable, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, there's, there's a lot of independent contractors. Like it's, if you can get a, a large organization to support this, I think that creates a kind of, um, it almost creates a moral imperative for, uh, for other small organizations to follow along, you know, but, but ultimately, as long as it's still the easiest option, um, contractors and, and delivery services and people picking pe- people up and dropping them off are going to continue to use that. Uh, it, you know, the, the only real solution is to create a bike lane that you can't block. Well, hopefully we can get to that. And, and, and discussions like this are hopefully going to be a catalyst for that as well. Ryan, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Likewise. Take care. Ryan McGreal, of course, editor of Raise the Hammer. And be careful. And look, at, I understand that we're not going to be able to build uh, that, that kind of a barrier, especially a, 
uh, whether it's planters or something that's aesthetically attractive like that. But in the meantime, if you're driving, just watch out, especially in the summertime when uh, there are a lot more people on cycles right now and, and on bicycles and, and different kinds of transportation like that, and even pedestrians for that matter. Just see an awful lot of people that just don't seem to be paying attention, and uh, that can have tragic consequences. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It was a few weeks ago now that the Bank of Canada decided to raise interest rates, and a few weeks before that, that the Ontario government decided that they want to stick their nose into the real estate market, and they put some measures in place to try to slow down or cool off, whatever phrase they were using at the time, the, uh, the real estate market that was going on. And it was hailed by some people that said, wow, it's going to make things more affordable. This will be wonderful. Uh, well, we raised some concerns at the time, and uh, now some economists are starting to suggest that maybe there is uh, some rationale for some concern here that this could actually slow down the economy because the Ontario economy uh, is very much reliant on fees associated with buying and selling real estate and associated things like renovations, etc. And, and if people aren't buying or selling or renovating, a lot of people are out of work, and that could be a problem. We're going to talk about that just after 10.30 this morning. Right now, though, speaking of working and uh, working and our tax dollars working for us, a form research poll uh, done of Hamilton taxpayers shows that many of us are fed up with squandered tax dollars that have been wasted on public infrastructure. The poll shows that 90% of Hamiltonians say that elected officials got to do a better job to ensure that we get a better bang for our buck. Karen Reckema is the uh, spokesperson for the Progressive Contractors Association of Canada that commissioned this poll, and uh, she joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Morning, Karen. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us today, too, and you uh, actually, I think, have hit a nerve here because you're talking about something that a lot of people in this community are talking about. It's one thing to say, okay, fine, uh, you know, we need to get this done, and we need to get infrastructure projects done, and we've all heard about infrastructure deficits and uh, that there just isn't enough money to cover all the work. But the overriding question that we need to be addressing here, and I think you've done that with the poll, is, okay, the money that is de- dedicated to those projects, are we using it efficiently? And and most of us seem to think no. No, I mean, it really taps into a growing frustration in Hamilton, um, and that was shown in the poll numbers, as you said. Uh, there's little question that people want policies that will save them tax dollars, not squander them. And that's just a growing frustration overall. There are some tie-ins here to some provincial policy that, that are a factor here. Let's talk a little bit about that, Karen. Sure. Ontario uh, is actually the only province in all of Canada that has a, a loophole in their labor relations policy that allows just a very small group of companies and their affiliated unions to monopolize almost a billion dollars worth of uh, municipal construction work and public construction work across the province. So that leaves us with fewer companies that are allowed to compete for these projects and uh, build our hockey arenas and splash pads, and uh, therefore that makes construction work um, at least 30% more expensive across the board in municipalities across Ontario, including Hamilton. Now, I'm not asking you to, to, to state the, the, the government's opinion or their, their rationale for this, because I'm not sure that there is a, a justifiable defense, but what were they thinking when they developed a policy like that, which basically restricted the number of people who could actually bid on some of these contracts? Well, it's, the, the, it's, a, it's a loophole in the Labor Relations Act that has existed for quite some time, but, you know, since Hamilton... Uh, found themselves in a situation where they only get maybe two bidders on a project, like the recent splash pad in Hamilton. Um, it, basically, they, they've not changed this. Um, Hamilton's been, been paying 30% more for their construction projects since 2005. Um, we've been advocating to the provincial government to close this loophole to allow municipalities to uh, find the best savings, the best dollar amounts, and uh, qualified contractors to bid on their projects. But uh, uh, for some reason, um, you know, the the government would rather side with uh, a few select unions and uh, their uh, contractors as opposed to um, siding with taxpayers on this. So, so this was a lobby effort then by by some unions to try to make sure that this was done. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've they they've, they found uh, municipalities that are in a situation where they can. Uh, um, uh, uh, basically certify the municipality so that uh, they own, the municipality can only contract that work to that specific union and their signatory contractors. 
And I know that we've gone through that in Hamilton on a couple of different projects yeah. right now. Because what it does is it really kind of undercuts the the philosophy of having a bid process, doesn't it? Because, I mean, most of us, when we hear this this process in place for whatever project, whether it's a splash pad or building a new arena or, or a stadium, uh, any number of things like that, we think that, okay, that means that everybody has an equal opportunity. They, they put their bid together, uh, sealed bids, for instance, in, in many of these cases, and the city will simply pick the one which is the most cost efficient for taxpayers so we get the infrastructure project done at the the best possible price it's sort of like Trivago, right for for infrastructure projects <laughs> uh, except we don't have that guy doing it for us he's not selecting all those sites like the guy in the commercial is it's very restricted as to who can actually put a bid in well you get to you get to the heart of the matter is that the Ontario government has has a has a policy in place to allow for the lowest qualified uh, bidder to win the project. However, they're tying the hands of a number of municipalities and public entities across the province and not allowing them to do so. I mean, a rec- I spoke about the recent splash pad, the one in uh, the one that was tendered for Heritage Park in Hamilton. You only received two bidders on that project. There are a Abundantly more qualified bidders in Hamilton that could bid on that project that can't because their workers chose not to be affiliated with one specific union. And, and it's not only a fairness for taxers, it's a fairness for the workers in, in Hamilton. Um, just because they haven't chosen to be affiliated with one specific union, um, they're not allowed to bid on the projects that they're actually paying for. They're the taxpayers in the city of Hamilton, and they can't even they can't even work on the projects that, that their taxpayers are paying for. Now, I mean, what muddies the water here is is there is discussions going on here about fair wage policies and and, and things of this nature and living wage policies, uh, and and some cities and municipalities are suggesting that we're only going to hire people. Uh, whose whose unions or whose companies adhere to those sorts of policies? Uh, I'm not sure what the rationale is on this, but I mean, for the government to to make a, a policy like this, that essentially says, "Well, look at only companies that uh, that are affiliated with this union can do the work." Uh, you've got to ask yourself: Do they have the taxpayers' best interest at heart here? I understand that's great for the people in those unions, and God bless them for that. But at the same time, you and I are the ones that are footing the bill for this, and if if we're paying thirty percent more for a project than, than other municipalities might be or other jurisdictions might be because of an Ontario law, you got to ask yourself, where, where, what else could we be doing with that money if we weren't having to spend it, overspend it, really, on, on one certain project? Well, I mean, the question is, how many more splash pads could you put in? How many more hockey arenas could you put in, uh, transit expansion, all of that? I mean, uh, you know, the city of Hamilton on this uh, splash pad uh, is paying $215,000 more than if you just crossed over the border into Burlington. And that's a small, that's a small splash pad. That's only a $720,000 um, um, piece of construction. Um, go over to Burlington, uh, you'd be paying $215,000 less. That's a lot of money. You add that up on the city's budget, um, you could be doing it. The taxpayers could be reaping the benefits a lot more. So what can we do about this as, as taxpayers, as, as people that are, are looking at this and saying, wait, wait, wait just a second here. Uh, you know, there's got to be a better way. Do we petition City Hall? Do we talk to Queen's Park? Where, where's, where's the answer? Where's the hot button we can push here? I think, it's, I think the taxpayers were pretty resounding in the poll. And I think, you know, the bottom line is that taxpayers' money is being squandered. And they're getting ta- being taken advantage of in this scenario. And I think the message to City Hall is, you know, rather than um, going to bat for the taxpayers right now, they're staying pretty quiet on this. And I think City Hall's really got to petition um, the pr- province to change this policy, to change the legislation. And I think that it, it's really then the, the ball's in the province's hands to just move forward with this and to make the legislative change to allow cities like Hamilton, but also the region of Waterloo, Sault Ste. Marie, um, Toronto this is District School Board, many different public entities to be allowed to openly tender projects so that all qualified bidders and all qualified workers can work on projects and therefore increasing competition and um, allowing taxpayers to get the best value for their buck. I mean, without getting too deeply into the history, you know that we went through a, a rather frustrating process uh, with the Pan Am Committee years ago and the, the new stadium was uh, was. Uh, being uh, planned, and and obviously uh, there was a great deal of consternation here that some of the local bidders weren't included in in that process. Uh, they went with the European companies, it turned out, and we all know that didn't work out so well. 
But uh, it, what it what it did is it, it, I think it brought that argument to the front burner for us to say, well, wait a second, why isn't this such an open process right now? And and to find out that this uh, actually is being guided to a certain extent by legislation that's in place right now begs the question: Why, if it's a provincial legislation, uh, Karen? Why is it affecting Hamilton and some of the other communities that you've referenced here, but not others? Well, some of the communities have been certified as construction employers, and uh, there's a great history in this, and it's complicated history, but um, uh, it all depends on what community has been certified as a construction employer. So basically, Hamilton is being treated as a construction contractor, and they can only subcontract or contract work out to a select group of companies, and they're affiliated union or unions. And um, it's been done. Um, These municipalities have been targeted uh, by this union as um, being uh, in the place of the construction employer. They get certified by two individuals in the city of Hamilton. It was two individuals that signed a card in order to certify Hamilton. And now all of Hamilton's construction um, projects are now under uh, what is called uh, to be deemed uh, Hamilton's a construction employer and, and deemed under this monopoly, really this monopoly of this one union and their affiliated contractors. What union are we talking about here? The Carpenters Union. All right, and you feel that that's the union that's actually driving these costs up then? Uh, specifically in the city of Hamilton, on city of Hamilton projects, um, in the region of Waterloo, it's, uh, it's a very similar story, yes. With carpenters as, as well in in that particular jurisdiction. Yes, yes. And I know this also, uh, according to to the numbers I'm looking at here, uh, has an impact on some of the stuff that's done with Ontario Power Generation and Hydro One. And I know that we've had numerous discussions on this program over the last number of years about the outlandish costs of some of the projects that uh, that Hydro One and the OPG have been responsible for. Uh, and and it makes you wonder about where those costs are coming from. And we talk about contracts and how they're negotiated. Uh, if there's a rider there that's going to make sure that these things are going to be 30% higher than they probably should be, uh, that probably answers at least part of the concern we've had right now about some of the rising costs. Well, really, it gets down to competition. And uh, when you only have two or three bidders on a project, nobody's sharpening their pencils. Uh, and we're not suggesting that you take unqualified bidders, but there are many numerous qualified bidders. The city of Hamilton did a study when they were first certified in 2005, and I think they said they had 260 such contractors that were qualified to work on their construction projects back in 2005, but only 17 would be qualified now that they're deemed as a construction employer and they can only contract out to specific uh, companies that are affiliated with one union. That's huge. And when you don't have the contractor sharpening their pencils because they don't need to, they know that their competition is little to none, uh, you're going to have an increase in costs across the board. Is there a middle ground here? Is there something that, that, that governments can do at that level, both municipal and, and provincial, to try to find some sort of a, a solution here that's going to satisfy taxpayers and, and, and those people in the unions? Well, I, I think, I mean, it's a fairness question. It really is a fairness question. Um, I think we're all willing to compete with each other, and I think that's really what the bottom line is, and um, allow for the competition, allow for all companies, regardless of their union affiliation, and all workers, regardless of their union affiliation, to be able to compete on projects, on public projects, because that's the taxpayer's best value. And all it really is is a small little change in the Ontario Labor Relations Act um, to allow all companies to... Uh, compete and all workers to be able to work on public infrastructure projects across the province. And um, I, I would say that's a middle ground. That's easy. You're not favoring one over another. You're not favoring one worker over another. And, you know, it's uh, interesting, Bill, you probably talked a little bit about the uh, legislation on the program that uh, that's um, raising the minimum wage, Bill 148. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, um, and, and, it, and it's all about fairness to workers, right? There's a lot of conversation about the fairness to workers across Ontario. And we're kind of scratching our heads a little bit on that because that uh, legislation dealt with the Ontario Labor Relations Act. And we don't know why this was not included because this is a key component to fairness for workers. I mean, why are they not allowing fairness for workers in the construction industry to compete on uh, projects, regardless of who they've chosen to sign a card with or not sign a card with, 
but yet they're favoring other industries and other workers in other industries through that through that legislation. So um, at the end of the day, this is a fairness issue. It's fairness for taxpayers, and it's fairness for workers and businesses across the board. If communities like Hamilton and others that you've referenced here, Karen, are being unduly uh, uh, affected by this, why aren't they the ones that are squawking? Why are the why are the why are the municipalities squawking or why why aren't, why aren't they? they? Not? I I'm not hearing much from anybody about this uh, at the municipal yeah, level. That's a, good, that's a good question, and I think uh, that this is just that that issue that just uh, there's an undercurrent there, but but uh, it, it there's no public focus on it, and that's really why we we decided to work with Forum on this because um, the the municipal politicians very well know. Uh, that this is costing them, uh, them at least 30% more on their projects. Um, it's not a surprise to them. Um, the province knows it's happening, um, but, you know, there's no, there's no public discourse about it. It's a bit of a complicated issue. And so that's why we decided to work with Forum on this, to get a sense on, you know, taxpayers, are you, are, are you okay with this? Like, do, do you know that you're paying 30% more, that your tax dollars are not going as far as they could, that you could have three extra parks? Um, and I think this poll really puts focus on that, um, especially, you know, 87% of local taxpayers in Hamilton say this has got to be an issue in the next provincial election. And uh, so we're encouraging both the municipal politicians and taxpayers to make this an issue in the next provincial election um, so that we will see policy change and, and taxpayers in Hamilton can reap more for their tax dollar. Karen Rencom, uh, uh, spokesperson parts for the Progressive Contractors Association. Karen, thanks as always. As, uh, uh, well, I, I, I'm going to follow up on this because I'm trying to get some municipal reaction to this, but I certainly appreciate you taking the time with us today to uh, to certainly spur this conversation on. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Uh, your reaction to this, uh, this is not a new argument, but certainly I think a revelation for an awful lot of people about whether or not we're overpaying for some projects because of uh, what they're suggesting is actually provincial legislation. John, you're on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Your thoughts about what Karen just told us? Uh, the What do you call it? The uh, Tim Hortons field there where the Ticats play? That's a perfect example. It was a non-union company, and they didn't have a clue what they were doing. You can't just let any Joe Blow bid on contract jobs. Like It doesn't work that way. Well, and, no and, and to their credit, I know City Council yelled loud and long about that. Uh, Lloyd Ferguson, who was the chairman of that committee, of course, was on our program many times saying this is just wrong, that uh, that there were local contractors, uh, Ontario contractors, that could have and probably should have been allowed to bid, and they just weren't allowed to. Yeah, but they don't have the experience. They don't have the manpower. Like, they don't – the guy that did Tim Hortons Field, he was lost, and that's why it took so long to get it done, and they got nothing but problems with it. Exactly, and as you mentioned, that really just seems to underscore the problem. Uh, thanks so much for the call, John. I appreciate it. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.